I had people come up to me and mention the ways in which they saw themselves reflected in my campaign and therefore saw themselves reflected in our democracy in a way that they never had before. And that really transformed the way uh, I thought about what made for a good democracy and certainly changed the, the course of my professional career after that election. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Lauren Baer. Lauren is managing partner at Arena, a progressive political organization that convenes, recruits, and trains campaign staff. Before Arena, Lauren was a lawyer and policy advisor, including six years at the State Department and a cycle as a congressional candidate in Florida. We had a very good conversation about Lauren's path to her current role, as well as an update on what's going on at Arena. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Lauren Baer at Arena. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Lauren, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Well, first off, Nathaniel, thanks so much for having me on. My name is Lauren Baer. I am the managing partner of an organization called Arena. Before this, I would say I've had a few professional lives. I started my career as a litigator. I then served for six years as a senior official in the Obama administration in the State Department, advising both Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry and UN Ambassador Power on matters of human rights and international law. And then I found myself during the 2018 election cycle as a quite unexpected candidate for U.S. Congress in Florida's 18th district back in the hometown where I was raised. Didn't win that election, but came out with a really fierce commitment to making our democracy better and stronger. Uh, and that brought me to the work that I do today at Arena, where we build the teams that power victories on the left. I want to explore that a little bit. One of the things that I've noticed is the talent that's coming into politics on the progressive side, including you, is really a step up from what I think I saw a generation ago. Tell me a little bit about your youth and your education. I love reflecting on my experience growing up. So I, I grew up in the northern end of Palm Beach County. My dad worked in a multi-generational family business founded by my great-grandparents in Indiana, later moved down to Florida. Like so many Jewish immigrants, they started a store. They sold furniture. I grew up with all of my aunts and uncles and cousins working together, selling furniture. And from this just developed this real sense of how I was tied to the community in which I was raised this feeling that we're all better off when we're all better off. I'm only doing as well as my neighbors because if they're not doing well, they're not coming in and buying bunk beds and, and sofas and the like was the product of local public schools in Florida. And then went off and, and studied at, at universities in the Northeast and in, in England and found my way into eventually working in government. Okay, so let, let me stop you there because you glossed over your educational resume in a way that people do who have too much elite credentials. But <laughs> fair enough. One thing I want to say is like my wife, who is Chinese American, her 
family had a furniture store, sold furniture in Chinatown in New York City. And I think had that same kind of tie to their community. And so, and, and they were also immigrants, probably a little bit later immigrants because they came post Chinese revolution. But I think I feel connected both to you in a certain way, both on the Jewish side and on the furniture side, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but you must've been a very good student to have gone off to Harvard. Then, I don't know, was it a Rhodes that got you to It was a Marshall. England? A Marshall that got you to England to study at Oxford and then Yale Law. Tell me a little bit about those stepping stones for you. What were you learning at each of those universities and how were you developing? I don't want to hide that. I think there's a strain now of sort of anti-elite, which is very understandable when we talk about education and things are complicated. They're selective places and you end up among people who are going places. And I think it's worth having people understand that a bit, even if there are many talented people everywhere. I was the first member of my family to ever go to an Ivy League institution. My mom wasn't able to complete her college education because she'd had to pay her own way through. It was a big deal for my family when I landed at Harvard and a big deal for me. Uh, I remember showing up in Cambridge and feeling like I was a little bit provincial. Maybe I thought I was worldly before then, but I was surrounded by so many people with just a, a wide range of experiences. And I remember thinking that it was my job at college to just soak up as much knowledge as possible and expose myself to as many different types of people as I possibly could. I remember filling out that questionnaire they send you before you're a freshman asking you, what do you want in your roommates? And I said, please place me with people as different from me as you can possibly find, because I really wanted to be stretched. And that to me is what marks that college experience. It was also the first time that I really meaningfully traveled to parts of the world that were non-Western countries. Um, I spent a lot of time over the summers living and working and researching in developing countries. That caused me for the first time in my life to reflect seriously on what it meant to be an American, what America's role was. So I studied social studies in college, which was an interdisciplinary social sciences program, a uh, little bit of politics, a little bit of economics, a little bit of philosophy. You read a lot of the works of, of the great political and, and social theorists, discuss them in, in small groups, and then ultimately craft a thesis topic. For mine, I went and did research in a rural part of Guatemala in the Western Highlands about women's roles in international development projects that were going on. For me, that was just an incredible experience to engage really deeply with texts, but also engage really deeply with my classmates. We were grappling with the thorny problems that great thinkers have, have thought about for, for centuries. And it, it really helped open my eyes to how to think and, and reason strategically and deeply. I mean, there's such a difference between the theory and then actually being in Guatemala among people living very differently than Palm Beach County. Yeah, for, for sure. And that's a realization that I came to throughout the course of my academic career, not just in college, but in graduate school and law school, is that while I love in engaging with the theory on an intellectual level, I ultimately knew I wanted a career that was much more steeped in the practice. I could not see myself as an academic in the ivory tower writing academic articles all day, every day. I really wanted to be um, on the ground doing the work in some way. How was Oxford different than what you were experiencing here? I mean, like when I've talked to other people who've been there, they've been somewhat intimidated by the different style of, of learning. Did you find that? Yes, there's so much more freedom, frankly, in the British system. So many hours in the day, uh, very little class, tons of time to 
read and write and frankly just sit in the pub and have pints with your friends. And Oxford for me was this magically global experience. I studied international development in a program that had about 30 students and I think 20 different nationalities were represented. My roommates were a South African and a Scotswoman. It was all about really opening my eyes to the different lived experiences of individuals from around the world, understanding the the perspectives that they brought to to the table, and also building just lifelong friendships. I was only there for a couple of years, but these are people who've stayed really close to me for my life. So did you find yourself becoming a different person through this process? I think a more mature person. I definitely found myself becoming a person who knew definitively that she wanted to be a policymaker. I was in Oxford from 2002 to 2004. This was the the height of the Iraq war. George W. Bush was president. And it was the first time that I was really being held accountable for the views of the leadership of my country. Of course, I didn't vote for George W. Bush. At, at the time, I thought he was the worst possible thing that could have happened to our country and couldn't imagine any president who could be worse than he was, naively. And yet I found myself in, in these rooms with individuals, again, from all over the world who were deeply opposed to the American military action. That was taking place and and were asking me, despite my different politics, to justify it. That really hardened my belief that if I was going to be held accountable for the views of our country, um, then I wanted to have a role in making and shaping those policy decisions. Whereas when I went into Oxford, maybe I thought there was a sliver of a chance I'd come out an academic. I knew, just knew that I, I wanted to come out as a policymaker in my career. I found it to be challenging sometimes to juggle patriotism, which I do feel for my country, with a long series of mistakes in foreign policy that we've made through every administration, pretty much going back. How do you find that balance? Because you were at State Department later on, Right now is another time where I think a lot of young people in particular are trying to sort out how we should think about even a government, which I support on most issues, has lots of challenges around the world. Yeah. So I always go back to to that language in our founding documents, we the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union and inherent in that idea being the notion that we are a country in, in constant creation, that there is always something we can be doing better and that we ought to be learning from the past and constantly be seeking improvement. And I think that applies to, to foreign policy as much as it applies to domestic policy, as much as it applies to, to social policy. So to my mind, that's how I, I frame things as, as a policymaker. We are a country that is shaped in so many ways by these grand ideals that we, we try to live up to, liberty, justice, equality for all. And we fall short so many times. But what distinguishes our country, I think, at its best is, is that we, we keep trying. We keep trying to, to do better and keep striving for that, that more perfect union. And so that's how I wrap my head around it. One of the things that keeps me doing this podcast through 950 plus interviews is talking to people who are really on that path of trying to, trying to better this union. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're in that number. Why law school after that? What was your <laughs> thinking there? I knew that law was a tool for change in our society. Laws govern so much of what happens in this country, what you are able to do, what you are not able to do, everything from from voting rights to, to gun violence prevention to reproductive freedoms, these 
issues that are so contested are ultimately governed by laws and laws at the local and state and, and federal level. And so for me, becoming a lawyer was about uh, learning about a system that controlled, in my mind, the, the levers for change. Did you like it? I loved it. My wife thinks I'm, I'm crazy for, <laughs> for saying that, but I really, I really enjoyed law school. I went to, to law school at a place that allowed much more flexibility than most law schools. I had really brilliant and diverse classmates who have gone on to do just a range of remarkable things um, in their careers and I think pushed me to be a better person. I've run into Yale Law graduates all over the progressive ecosystem, and I'm sure there are others out there doing wildly different things as well, but it's, it's an impressive group. Even with those credentials, launching a career is a complex thing. Can you sort of trace the steps that you took that take you to the State Department? The route is never as simple as one might think. Yeah, so I'll tell a little anecdote uh, story from, from law school, which is actually relevant to how I eventually ended up in the State Department. I took a class, an elective class, my, my second semester at law school on international human rights law. And as part of that class, the professor made every student give a presentation in which he pretended to be the Secretary of State and you had to pretend to be a policymaker trying to convince him of a particular position. And the day before I was was set to present in class, he pulled me aside and he said, Lauren, I just want to let you know, tomorrow we're not going to be doing class in our regular classroom. We're going to be doing it in the law school auditorium, the largest room in the law school. And I'm not going to be playing the Secretary of State. I've invited former Secretary of State Madeleine Albridge right, <laughs> to join us in class, and she will be playing. Secretary of State. Tough role for her. <laughs> yeah, this, this was absolutely, absolutely mortifying to me as a, a lowly first-year law student to be put in front of one of my one of my idols. But needless to say, uh, the presentation went really well. Is that needless to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I worked pretty darn hard to make sure that it went well. Um, but it did. And um, you know, from that experience, it, it was again during the Bush years. I was able to go um, spend a summer working with Secretary Albright and a number of, of former Clinton administration foreign policy officials at, at, her, at the Albright Group. At the yeah. Albright Group. When you fast forward, then um, a, a couple of years, I'm I'm out of law school. I've been practicing as, as a litigator because when I finished law school and finished my clerkship after law school, George W. Bush is still president, so I don't want to go work for the government just yet. Um, but I'm at a point where I really decide I want to launch my career uh, as a policymaker. And those folks that I'd met back when I was a, a lowly uh, intern um, ended up being really instrumental in, in terms of helping me find a place in government, which is is why I always tell young people when I'm interacting with them, um, just just never underestimate the the potential of a chance encounter to to change your life. You skipped over your legal career, like clerking and and working for a law firm. Any of that useful in what you do now? Every day, every day. I think I bring a legal mind and a litigator's mind to the work that I do. There's an exacting degree of precision in terms of how I think about things, how I write, I'm intentional with my words. In the State Department, there was a, a very direct impact of my legal decree, which was to say uh, I was advising two different secretaries of state on international law. And so it played into my work on a day-to-day -day basis. Did they need advice on international law? I mean, Hillary went to the same law school, right? John Kerry's a, a lawyer also, right? Tell me about that. Like, of course they have legal staff, but... Actually, I thought I had the most fun legal job in the State Department. So I, I wasn't in the office of the legal advisor. I wasn't technically working as a lawyer. The State Department has a whole, a whole bureau full of lawyers. 
Uh, but I was the person in the secretary's office who took those legal advisory opinions and was asked to evaluate them from a policy perspective. Sometimes the law gives you a, a narrow window in which you can act. Sometimes the law gives you a, a much broader window in which you can act. And so there are always a range of decisions that can be made from a policy point of view within the bounds of, of what is legal. That's an area in which both of those secretaries of state were, were very much interested um, in how they could exercise the power of the U.S. government to create good around the world. Could you give one example? The range of things that I would think about would include everything from what are our obligations under certain treaties to how do we ensure the protection of civilians in the context of, of certain U.S. military actions. And they were always issues, again, where there was a range of choice. And I always found myself just incredibly impressed that the people I worked for really wanted to get it right. Clinton and Kerry in power, having their ear or them having your ear, however you would say it, that's a pretty high level for a young person. How did that feel? How did they treat you? What was the what was the day-to-day -day like for you? They're all deeply, deeply intelligent and accomplished individuals in their own right who were incredibly respectful of their staffs and the amount of time and, and effort and energy that those staffs put into the work. Part of, of being a young person doing this work and at the time that I started in the secretary's office. I had just turned 30 years old, so I was much younger than I am now. And there were nights and weekends involved, but it was work that always made me feel really good to do. I remember during the, the handful of years that I was practicing law, I worked really long hours, but I didn't always feel great about my clients. You feel pretty great when your client is the United States of America and when they were working on goals as lofty and important as what was being worked on in the State Department during those years. You said you found yourself in the congressional race that you tackled, <laughs> which every once in a while I stumble into a, a, a federal uh, contest like that. But yeah. <laughs> not everybody <laughs> does. to the best of us. <laughs> I mean... That was a time, I think, where a lot of talented people were, frankly, traumatized by Trump coming into the government. There were just a whole lot of good candidates all around the country tackling districts of varying degrees of winnability. What's your story about why you found yourself there? So... If you were to rewind to the summer of 2016 and ask me if I would ever run for office, the answer would have been a resolute no. I found electoral politics kind of yucky. That's the technical term. Yucky is the technical term. Made my skin crawl a little bit. Uh, I was very happy in the world of policy, not, not politics. And I also was pretty confident at that time, naively confident that my former boss, Hillary Clinton, would get elected president of the United States and would be my future boss. And I would get to work for the next four to eight years, continuing to make U.S. foreign policy. If I remember correctly, she did get more votes. She did. She did. Yeah. Uh, that is one of the confusing aspects of U.S. democracy to explain to my friends abroad. What ended up happening, though, that, that fall was two things in, in close succession. I gave birth to our first daughter in late October 2016 and wow. had this really blissful couple of week period where my wife and I were just so excited about the world she was going to be born into. She's never going to not know that a woman can be president. Rights are expanding for 
LGBTQ plus families like ours. The future is so bright. And then Trump gets elected. And as a political appointee, that means my job is over with the end of President Obama's term. And it just led to this period of of very deep introspection about how I could be having the greatest impact. And at all points in my life, when I've had big decisions to make, particularly professional decisions, I ask myself this question, how can I have the, the largest impact now? And I kept coming back to this teeny tiny baby daughter I had and thinking about what was I going to say to her when 10, 15 years into the future, she was old enough to be aware of what was happening during that time. And she asked me what I did to protect our democracy. And so for the first time in my life, I started to think about putting my own name on the ballot. It coincided with me for a period of time in my life where I was drawn to go home to Florida. My mom was very, very sick at the time. She ended up passing shortly after the 2018 election, but I wanted to be with her in her final months of life. And she was also someone who relied on the Affordable Care Act for her ability to get healthcare. She'd had so many medical complications that under previous systems, um, she would have been denied insurance because she would have exceeded lifetime caps on insurance coverage. And we had a congressperson who voted to repeal the ACA and take that all away. That's Mast, right? Yeah, it's Brian Mast. And so for me, it was just this, this confluence of things coming together in my personal life, my daughter, my mother, more broadly looking at the state of of democracy in our country that led me to one of those, if not now, when, if not me, who moments. For someone who hasn't contemplated running, that must be quite trial by fire to, to step into a race that becomes a red to blue target that people have hopes for, even though it's a tough district. Um, How were you as a candidate? How did you feel as a candidate? I mean, that is, my brother's been county commissioner of a decent sized county. I know what it's like when someone in the family runs for office, although his race was in a democratic district. What was it like for you? It was just this incredible life-changing experience for me. I remember even when I decided to do it, I had a great deal of trepidation and I was concerned that I was going to do it because I thought it was the right and important thing to do, but that ultimately I wouldn't like it very much. And what I instead ended up finding was that I loved the process of being a candidate and I I loved it because it embedded me in my community in this place that I thought I knew so well in such a deeper and more meaningful way than I'd ever been embedded in my entire life. There are few experiences like running for office that will force you to interact. If you're doing running for office right, you should interact with just a a wide swath of the population, a, a broad range of the individuals that you would be called on to represent from all sorts of backgrounds and and ways of life. And I had spent so many years in Washington looking at policy from this top-down perspective. And here I was seeing it through the eyes of the individuals who it directly affected. It gave me a, a, a fundamentally different perspective on policymaking, what makes for good policymaking, what makes for good political communications, but also made me just truly realize the importance of ending up with a democracy that's more reflective of the diversity of our country. I was acutely aware of the fact that I'm not like most people who have won elected office in this country. Most of them are straight, white, cisgendered men, Christians. Here I was, a a queer Jewish woman and mother running for office. But every single day, I had people 
come up to me and mention the ways in which they saw themselves reflected in my campaign and therefore saw themselves reflected in our democracy in a way that they never had before. And that really transformed the way uh, I thought about what made for a good democracy and certainly changed the, the course of my professional career after that election. I think there's something that I'm learning about your constitution that you, you know, when faced with Yale, which is a, a challenging environment, or when faced with running for Congress or some of the other things that you've taken on, that you look back at them and seem to experience them in a positive way. And I think a lot of people don't have that in their nature, that some people just have a, a more negative outlook and therefore don't tackle this kind of challenge or don't thrive on it when it happens. What is it about you that is able to, <laughs> to take these kind of trials with positivity, at least as you're saying it? That, that's that's funny, because uh, my wife would probably tell you I'm a bit of an anxious worrier. So maybe I'm getting a little bit of a, a colored story of it? No, or I, you know, I don't, I don't think you're getting a, a colored story at all, because I'm not glossing this. I, I genuinely really liked law school. I genuinely really enjoyed the experience of running for office which is not to say they were not challenging days or experiences in, in each, particularly the running for office part. I could go on and on about um, what is really hard and difficult and demoralizing at times about doing that and the, the kind of ringer we run uh, our candidates through. But looking back on, on those experiences in particular, I think I'm able to extract a, a great deal of meaning from them and understand the way that they shaped me as the person that I am today. I would hope it's not an overly rosy, rosy picture. I actually think in most cases when I'm giving people advice, I tell them to, to be really clear-eyed about the pros and cons of doing things. But I also know once decisions are made, you can control what you can control and you can't control what you can't. And so focusing on what you can control, making the most out of the places that you are in life, I have found that to be a way that I'm able to stay grounded and centered in what are really kind of turbulent times that we live in. How did you feel about the candidate that you were opposed. I mean, like when I look at his record, he's voted against impeachment. He voted with most of the Republicans to not certify Biden's election. He's also not the most extreme of the Republicans. He's probably in the middle of them. And that party's a little bonkers right now, as we all know. Did it feel personal, you against him? Did you conceive of a strong dislike for the guy? How, how did you think about that person and then him winning, beating you and making these kind of votes? You know, I tried to not conceptualize the election itself in these very personal terms, me versus a nemesis or something like that. I, I don't think that would have been productive from an emotional perspective. But what I did spend a lot of time thinking about was the way in which he had voted against the interests of his constituents over and over again, me being one of them, one of his constituents. And I thought a lot about, in turn, the role of empathy for our elected leaders the importance of being able to see and understand lives that are different than yourself and the responsibility when you're making policy to try not to serve just a narrow subset of the population, but really the best interests of the population as, as a whole. And I just very fundamentally felt that he was an individual of a lot of rhetoric about helping his community and then a lot of actions that actually harmed a lot of people. And, and for me, that really strengthened my resolve to, to try to get someone better into office. You mentioned, you know, how people responded to 
you being a gay Jewish woman running. And at the same time that that was inspiring to people who felt unrepresented, it feels like some of that also is threatening to the kind of people who DeSantis in Florida and Trump nationally have tapped into. And that there is a bit of a war in our country between what maybe the old guard views as the different people and and the heterosexual white Christian folks that have run the country for a long time. Obviously, we have people like that on both sides, but that is part of the divide. How did you feel towards the, the electorate, the majority of which was not with you? And can you understand what their deal is? The first thing that I would say, I mean, when it came down to the, the ultimate vote count in the district, I don't think I lost because of my sexuality. I think I, I lost because the district is, is ultimately a Republican district. And part of the reason I'm able to feel good about things in, in retrospect is because I think I, I left it all on the field. The results of not just my race, but so many other races in Florida that year and subsequently were sort of canaries in the coal mine with respect to the broader direction that Florida was moving politically. But with respect to your, your question about my sexuality, I think it's important to remember that even though it was only seven years ago, 2018 was a very different political environment to be running for office in as a queer person than it would be today, right? Ron DeSantis was on the ballot the same year that I was. And so I, I think in many ways, even with everything going on in the Trump administration, there was still a degree of restraint on the right at that time with respect to criticizing people for their sexuality. My Republican opponent never directly brought it up. It was not a topic of attack ads. It was in many ways surprisingly off the table. That's not the case now. Ron DeSantis and Others around the country, uh, Greg Abbott, state representatives all over the country, have really kind of pulled back the veil on this this latent homophobia and and transphobia, and in the last several years have become very emboldened in in scapegoating the LGBTQ plus community, such that anyone who runs today as an openly gay person experiences that as a is a very real component of their campaign and i and i think maybe a much more direct way than i did in in 2018 because some of those social bounds of respect still held we like to think of our country as a country of progress as you sort of said we're aiming for but any student of american history knows that we have progress and then we have reaction and we go forward and we go backwards. And sometimes we go backwards further than we went forward. And it's just not a linear process. Although I think we're still ahead from where we were when I was a kid on, on gay rights type things that's contested again. And these fights never end. It seems like. You know, progress is, progress is very uneven. Three steps forward, two steps back. One thing that certainly informed my thinking when I ran for office and also in my work now is my experience working at the State Department, where a big part of what I did was look abroad at other democracies that were backsliding and raise red flags about the direction that they were heading. And starting in 2016, I started to see those same red flags in our country increasing at an alarming rate. And so I knew very well, not just from history, but from what was going on in, in so many other parts of the world, that democracy was a, a very fragile and, and delicate thing. And that when 
you make that slide to authoritarianism, sometimes democratic rights are, are chipped away very, very slowly, and then all of a sudden very, very fast. And then that thing that you thought was always there to protect you is gone. I was raising red flags about this uh, and concerns about it at, at a time when I think a lot of folks still thought those concerns were overblown and now less so. Even though my hair is on end, worrying about what could happen in 2024 and subsequently, if particularly if the Republicans win the House and the Senate and the presidency, you're absolutely right that you look around, things can tip over even if the majority of people don't want it, them to, right? It just depends sometimes on, on who's in power and for what reason and what their aims are. And small numbers of people can take countries in directions that they shouldn't go. I, I think that's exactly right. And Trump is, is very much saying the quiet part out loud right now. It's astonishing that he, that he is kind of boldly like being clear about like, yeah, we're going to have concentration camps for deporting millions and millions of people. What? He's, he's very, very clear about what his intentions are, about the ways that he plans to erode democracy, use the Department of Justice and the courts for personal and political retribution, make life worse for minorities and retain his hold on on power. This should be a story that is on the front page of our newspapers every single day because we have seen this playbook before in other countries and it does not end well for democracy. It does not. Can you touch quickly on what you did after running for office before joining Arena. <laughs> sure. I came out of running for office. I took a little time to regroup with my family, to be with my mom in her final days. I was actively engaged in the, the 2020 elections in a couple of different ways, being involved on the Biden campaign with his foreign policy team, doing some other consulting and advising. Uh, and then I also founded a political action committee called More Like America, which gave money to diverse candidates in the very early stages of their campaigns to help them get off the ground. Something that I became very, very aware of during my campaign were just the, the numerous barriers to running for individuals who don't look like folks who've run before. People talk all the time about the importance of early money, but it, it really is true. There are very real startup costs to getting into the arena, to, to launching a campaign. I believe that our, our democracy works better when it's more reflective of our country. And I wanted to help other candidates, particularly those at the state legislative level, get that leg up so that they could run solid campaigns. Does that pack continue after your taking a different job? It's not actively continuing now, but it's very much folded into the work that, that we do at ARENA in terms of supporting candidates around the country at the state ledge level through what we call our ARENA staff fellowship. But the ethos of it is also supported through all of our work to bring more women, more people of color and, and more LGBTQ folks into politics. So I think it was back in 2017, I interviewed Ravi Gupta. Yep. I don't remember that interview in detail, but I remember being very impressed that he's a serious person and that they were an ambitious group of people trying to pull together a lot of resources to make a difference. What has happened since 2017 with Arena, particularly since you have uh, taken the helm? Yeah. So... Robbie's an, an old law school buddy of mine and a real visionary, I think. And what Arena was doing in the, the early years 
was bringing together groups of individuals who were saddened or angered or motivated by Trump's election and trying to channel that energy into something positive or good. Out of those early arena summits, a number of people ended up raising their hands and and running for office. And I I count myself among the folks who attended an early arena summit and used that as, as part of the inspiration and boost I needed to get on the ballot. But then arena did something really, really smart after the 2018 elections, which was to take a step back, look at the broader progressive ecosystem and say, what's missing? And we surveyed all of the candidates we'd helped elect. We surveyed people who'd attended our summits and we said, what's, in, what's important to you right now? What's challenging right now? And candidates across the board were reporting difficulty, hiring qualified, well-trained staff who represented the diversity of the districts that they were running in. And a number of the individuals who had come to early arena summits and wanted to break into politics were reporting real difficulty actually finding a way to get jobs because politics was still such an old boys network. You needed to know someone who knew someone to to get a job. And, And so that was really the origin of us switching the focus of the organization to now work on building the teams that power democratic victories. Think about it. Everything that the candidate needs to win besides the candidate him or her or themselves. And so we really do four things. Now, we do campaign staff training through a range of programs, including our flagship program called Arena Academy. We train campaign managers, finance directors, data directors, digital directors, comms directors, organizers. And we've trained more than 7,000 people since 2019 through our programs the majority of them women, the majority of them people of color, more than 35% LGBTQ+. Then we don't only train them, we help them find jobs up and down the ballot in races all across the country. Because again, we don't think your network should be a barrier to you working in politics. We run a, a jobs board. We help connect our alums directly two career opportunities through a talent bank. We do one-on-one coaching on interview prep and and how to develop your resume so that people can really come out of our trainings and land in a good place doing the work. We have the Arena Toolbox, which is a suite now of more than 80 free downloadable campaign tools. So that cost doesn't have to be a barrier to having the absolute best tools on your campaign. And that's everything from how do you buy digital ads to how do you use WhatsApp for relational organizing. And then the final thing we do is we still support great candidates. And we do this at the state legislative level through the Arena Staff Fellowship. This is where we look at states where Democratic majorities are within reach or need to be defended at the state legislative level. And we find races with great diverse candidates where there's a staffing gap. We take someone we've trained, we put them on the race, we fully fund their salary and benefits. And we have found that this investment, relatively low dollar in the context of political investing, can be determinative of a victory or a loss in these these very close races at the state level. How does that work campaign finance-wise? Here you remember that there are different states with vastly different rules, including many of them, um, which have no limits in terms of what you can fund at the state level. Do you do federal campaigns at all? No, this is not federal. Yeah. So the, the toolbox, that's interesting to me. What's in the toolbox? You said you had a large number of different tools beyond what you said. Help me understand exactly what what a candidate would get or a campaign would get. Yeah, sure. So if you're just getting started off the ground, you might think, well, the first thing I need is is I need to raise some money. I need to develop a finance plan. Well, how do I do that? Well, you can go to the toolbox. You have a template you can download, and it will enable you to, to fill in the blanks with numbers, estimates from your campaign to help you to develop a finance plan to track what you need to do to, to raise your money. Uh, similarly, we, we have a tool, a pathway to victory tool, 
that helps you make certain assumptions about your your district, who's going to show up to vote and in what numbers, and find your way to getting to that, that 50% plus one. There are also tools that deal with the softer side of running a campaign. There's been a lot in the news in recent years about how individuals are treated as employees on, on campaigns, a push to do things like ensure that there's better pay and, and their benefits uh, and health care. So we have tools in there that will help you, for example, make an agreement with your team, setting up the, the values for your campaign and the, the operational rules uh, that, that you're going to work by. And then, and then there are many, again, that are much more technical tutorials about how to do different aspects of the work. So you can go on, you can search and filter by all sorts of different metrics. But our thinking in creating this was ultimately that, that you know, people spend a lot of time recreating the wheel on campaigns precisely because they have such short lifespans. They're going to exist for 24 months at the longest, most of them. And then when a campaign ends, so does that operation and that institutional knowledge. And we wanted that to, to live on in a certain place. Are those tools available to any campaign? Any campaign, any, any candidate, you know, if you were a candidate, if you were a staffer on a campaign, just visit arena.run slash toolbox and you can download any of them for free. We've got more than 55,000 downloads of them to date. It is one of the most popular and most utilized services we provide. What's the scale of Arena these days? What kind of budget are you talking about? How many people are working there? I like to say uh, we really punch above our weight as an organization. We're actually pretty small. We have nine full-time staff. We operate on about a $2 million a year annual budget. We do a heck of a lot with very little. And, and when I talk about our budget and our number of employees, I, I always like to make the comparison to what's happening on the Republican side, where organizations like Turning Point USA and the Leadership Institute, which are similarly focused on the recruitment and retention of talent, have budgets not in these single millions of dollars, but in the tens of millions of dollars. On the left, we simply have not invested as much in this kind of work as, as we should. Uh, and it's, it's really to our detriment. Arena did an analysis this year of the number of campaign staff that it would take to adequately staff just competitive races from just the state legislative level up to the presidential. It's 43,000 people in a presidential year. That's a huge workforce that we're talking about. And we on the left have invested very, very little in the development of that workforce. That's certainly not how the private sector does it uh, or how they think about their talent pool. When I think about the money that's going into this space in comparison to just the vast sums of money in politics overall, to me, it's really an area where there's potentially massive returns on investment by just shifting a small amount of the political dollars in the space right now. When you pitch Arena to funders, you have experience raising money for your campaign. You've experienced raising money for your political action committee. Two million does seem like a very small number. To, you know, I have a lot of respect for a million dollars. I know that that can support a lot of people and, and do a lot of things. But in the scope of a multi-billion dollar political game, it's what they call decimal dust, right? What is happening when you talk to funders, progressive funders about Arena and why can't we get somebody to put in 20 million and change the scale of this? You know, the first thing I would say, it's not just Arena. This is a system-wide problem and, and one that's particularly acute this cycle. There's been quite a bit written in the last many months about the, the pullback of major progressive donors, this election cycle about donor fatigue seven years after 2016. And so 
what we do experience is very much not unique within this system. But I would say it's, it's also emblematic of what I think is a, a broader problem on the left, which I would call a shiny, pretty object problem. We love to get enamored with our candidates. And I can't criticize that, right? I was a candidate myself, and there's a critical importance into investing in campaigns themselves. But there's a limited amount uh, that a campaign can do on a short timeline. Everything you've put into that campaign is gone after election day. We make it much easier for our candidates to get off the ground, to run good races, and ultimately to win if we invest in year-round infrastructure that builds up the the democratic and and progressive base that includes organizations like arena that are recruiting and cultivating and retaining talent but it also includes organizations that are doing year-round voter registration work and organizations that are doing year-round canvassing work to make sure that people know uh, about the accomplishments of, of a democratic administration we simply can't go on in a way where we think that plowing a ton of money into campaigns in the third quarter before an election is a winning strategy. And we've also really got to think longer term. We have to think over the horizon a a bit. I have found that so many people still think about politics on this 18 to 24 month time horizon. Well, that's certainly not the way that the Republicans think about things. They had a, a 40-year plan to overturn Roe, and, and they accomplished that through a, a methodical path that led them to control of the U.S. Supreme Court, but also unilateral control of more than 30 state legislatures in our country. And so part of investing in infrastructure orgs like ARENA is, is also investing in the long game and, and laying the groundwork for future success. You talked about when you made career decisions about looking around for how do you find the, the largest impact? How do you make arena into the highest impact that it can be so that you're on that road for yourself as well? I think about this in terms of how do we scale our work to really meet the need that exists out there right now? As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we need 43,000 folks to be working in this space in a presidential year. We're going to train about 2,000 this cycle. So that needs to be multiplied many fold. My tenure at Arena will be successful if I bring in the resources for us to really expand the number of individuals that we reach, the number of places that we are able to reach folks, the length of time that we are able to keep people in the work of doing politics and and the diversity of individuals who are are brought in. Because ultimately, I, I see our work as a big part of changing the face of who represents us in this country. And there's no project more important than that. There seems to be two different ways that people find a lot of funding generally. One is people with a lot of wealth that want to have impact this way. The other is kind of what you would call small donors reaching out to a lot of people for smaller amounts. They can also be persuaded, even if they have fewer resources, that this is a better bang for your buck. This is better long-term thinking. Do you guys have a program around that? And if you do, how's that doing? We do a a very small amount of small dollar fundraising. Most of our our fundraising comes from other uh, traditional funding sources. A big part of the driver of of that decision on our end has been the degree to which so many of those small dollar fundraising programs have become borderline abusive in recent years. Uh, it's, It's hard to find an individual who isn't upset by the number of emails uh, and texts they're getting in their inbox, but also the really extraordinary claims that they're making about what will happen if you don't give two or three dollars. And at the heart of Arena is really a community 
we have an email list of tens of thousands of people, but most of those individuals are folks who have been through our programs, who know the value of our work and very feel very connected to, to what we do. And so we see it as really important to respect them in terms of, of how we interact with them, both in person and via email. What else would you want people to know about Arena that might be allies or who might want to partake of your services? I will speak to, to two different groups here because there's something I'd want donors to know and then there's something I'd want participants to, to know, potential participants. And I'll speak to the donors first and, and then the participants. On the donor front, I would say I think Arena offers perhaps the best return on investment in politics that you can make. If you look at something like our staff fellowship program, which costs $25,000 a cycle to put a staffer on a state legislative race versus what that money would buy in terms of late cycle advertisements, get you about 30 seconds of airtime in a place like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Arizona. We're making investments that are actually determining who controls the legislature at the state level. Pennsylvania State House Legislative Caucus credits our program that we ran with flipping the state house to democratic control in Pennsylvania last cycle in races that were decided by very tight margins, smallest one, just over 60 votes. The range of things that can be impacted from that small investment, everything from gun violence prevention to, to reproductive rights to, to health care is, is just huge. And so my pitch to the community of folks who are going to put their dollars in, into politics this cycle is to, to think smartly about where they go and try to invest in orcs like Arena that are really building the infrastructure uh, that we need to win and we need to win in the hard places. And then my message to people who might participate in our programs, it's pretty simple, which is there's a place for you in politics. If you're a young woman or a person of color or a queer person, and you have been interested in getting involved, but you don't know how, we will help you. We will help train you. We will help find you a job. We will help you stay in the work. It can be scary to break in to an ecosystem which is, is unfamiliar and unlike anything that you have done before. But we have a really great track record of taking folks who have energy and enthusiasm and a commitment to making our country better and helping them find a place in, in our political process. And so I would really, really encourage folks to visit arena.run, sign up for notifications about our upcoming training programs and become a part of our community. I can see why you were able to do well in front of Madeleine Albright. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best, Nathaniel. <laughs> what should I have asked you that I failed to? So the, the one thing I wanted to mention is uh, Arena still does go back to its roots every so often and do big in-person convenings that are designed to galvanize and excite people and get them engaged with politics. And so we are going in person once and only once this cycle we will be hosting an arena summit in Atlanta, Georgia, the 17th through 21st of April of 2024. And we would love for you to be there and join us. We will be doing training, but we will not just be doing training. So there is something for everyone there who wants to find their place in politics this cycle. And again, visit arena.run to, to learn more about that and to sign up. Really an honor to talk to you. I appreciate all the time that you gave to this, and I wish you the best going forward. When you look forward to 2024, I'm struggling with feeling optimistic right now. What are you feeling? What I'm feeling is the weightiness of what's on the line in 
2024. And it seems like for the last many years, we've been saying this is the most important election of our lifetimes, but this will be the most important of our election of our lifetimes. And that will continue to be true until our democracy is in a better place. I know, we know as a country that, that we have a coalition that can come together and elect uh, a president and elect leaders in the House, in the Senate, at the state level who respect democracy and our form of, of government. And so I feel cautiously optimistic in the sense that I know we've done it before, so we can do it again. But I also am acutely aware of how much work there is to do. And so going back to something I told you earlier about controlling what I can control and not what I can't, I'm going to put my head down and do the work for the next year so that when I wake up the day after election day, I feel that, that we left it all on the field and delivered what was right for our country. Well, thank you for those efforts. Anything else you want to say? No, that's it. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for going so deep into everything and for calling me out on glossing over <laughs> large things. I'm used to having to like skip ahead and condense stuff. So this was really fun to be introspective. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for reaching out and having me on. That was Lauren Bear. She is at arena.run. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.